Uh, and the passage on which the teaching is based this morning is in uh, the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables. You're welcome to get up right now and grab one. And, uh, but as you do that, and feel free to do that. If you don't know what Romans is, by the way, there's a table of contents for you in the front of uh, your Bible, and you can find it there. But um, I want to pray for us. Let me pray. And help me to preach, Lord, that by your Spirit I might proclaim the gospel, and that the saving presence of Jesus might become real to us, not just as an idea, but as an existential reality. May he who is the truth set us free that we might be free indeed. It's in our liberating Lord's name that we do pray. Amen. Well, Paul asked in verse 27, where is boasting? It was 1964, February, and Muhammad Ali was about to enter into the biggest fight of his career the world title. He was facing Sonny Liston. And there in an interview beforehand, he uttered these famous words, I am the greatest. In another interview, Ali said, I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, I'm pretty. I like that one. And I can't possibly be beaten. Boasting. It's all around us. It's in athletic fields and arenas all across our country today, but it's not just in athletic fields and arenas and places like that. Boasting is also on the playground. My dad is bigger than your dad. Boasting is on our bumper stickers. My kid's an honor student, honor roll. Uh, boasting, it's, it's in their email signatures. I once received an email that said, outstanding student, future leader, all-around great guy. <laughs> we boast in all sorts of ways. Social media, look at how great my life is. Boasting is everywhere. Paul asks, where is boasting? I want to say, where is humility? Where isn't boasting? Boasting is everywhere, and it takes lots of different forms. It comes in the form of name-dropping. Oh, I had breakfast with the queen the other day. That's one that I find myself doing often. <laughs> it finds its way into our conversations and one-upmanship. And sometimes our one-upmanship is even like one-upping other people about how difficult life is. Man, to, yesterday was awful. The dishwasher broke and, you know, Sally had soccer and this other thing. Well, you know what? This whole semester, I have been driving over 100 miles a day. One-upmanship. We boast in all sorts of ways. There's even a Christian form of boasting. You know, we sign our emails, your humble servant. I'm more humble than you are. I'm worse than you are. And then there's, there are pastors who boast. Did you know pastors boast? When we get around together at conferences uh, pretty soon, you know, 
Someone asks. So how big is your church? And if our churches aren't very big, then we just boast in our battle scars. You will never guess what happened to me. Boasting, it's everywhere. We boast in whatever makes us feel worthy, valuable, significant, weighty. We will hold these things up to say, look at me. My life matters. Boasting, it's pride and achievements, abilities, relationships, position, status. It's all around. It's also a problem. Because boasting is by nature competitive. We don't simply boast, we boast over someone else. I'm the greatest, Ali said. And this competition, this one-upmanship, we always have to make sure that we are marked out as distinct, as different. We're starting, uh, we've been, started a new series last week. We're taking a break from our series on Mark uh, to mark uh, 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and we're doing that because um, I want to take some time to talk about what to my uh, to my mind, is um, the greatest idea in the Protestant Reformation, and that is this idea of justification by faith. To, to justify is simply to deem someone to be in the right. To deem someone to be right with respect to a standard, to deem them to be righteous. And uh, we all have standards, like we saw last week, and we all live according to standards, religious standards, secular standards, standards in our heads, standards that others have. We all try to live up to these standards to be deemed worthy. But justification by faith says that we are deemed to be right, not for anything that we have done, but for simply what Jesus has done. Not for anything we are, but for who Jesus is. That God looks at us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we have Christ's life because we do have Christ's life. Justification by faith. And we said that Luther, his great question was, how can I find a gracious God? And for him, justification by faith was the answer. I don't actually think that that is Paul's at least presenting question. I think Paul's presenting question is how can Gentiles enter the people of God and be considered part of the people of God? But that's not really our question either. Our question is how can we just get along? How can we get along with one another with so many divisions, with so much strife? We can't talk to other people. There's no room for discourse in our society today. The liberal arts have become illiberal because we don't know how to disagree. How can we get along? And boasting becomes a problem there. It divides us. And to my money, to all three of those answers, questions I mean, justification by faith is the answer. Justification by faith is the answer to our question because justification by faith rules out boasting. 
Look at what Paul says again in verse 27. Where then is boasting? He says, where then is boasting? In other words, he's saying, where is boasting now? Where is boasting in light of what I've just said? Where is boasting in light of the fact that the righteousness of God has, the righteousness of God has been revealed? The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God by faith in or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What about that? What about boasting? Uh, bo where's boasting now that God has revealed his righteousness and that righteousness is a gift to be received by faith? Where is boasting a lot of the fact that God has shown himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ? Where is boasting now? Where is boasting in light of that? See, where is boasting, in other words, in light of the fact that God deems us righteous or to be in the right or to have met the standard on the basis of what Jesus has done and not what we have done? Where is boasting in light of justification by faith? And Paul says, verse 27, it is excluded. That the doctrine of justification by faith excludes human boasting. Let me show you three reasons. First, the doctrine of justification by faith excludes human boasting because the doctrine of justification by faith means that God justifies the ungodly. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul speaks, uh, Paul says that it's trusting in God who justifies the ungodly. That is what deems one righteous. Now, why does he talk about trusting in the God who justifies the ungodly? Well, because there are no godly in Paul's terms. See, Paul has, you have to remember, Paul has just leveled out his devastating assessment of humanity. That they are all under the power of sin. Verse 9 of chapter 3, For we have already charged or already, uh, already established that all, both Jews and Greeks, and in Paul's world, that's everybody, are under sin. That is, under the power of sin. You see, for Paul, sin is not simply like acts that we do. No, more than that, it's a condition that we live in. It's an environment that we live in. And it's an environment that though it works out in its unique and peculiar ways in each of our lives, it's actually divvied out in equal measure on all of us. Sin is a condition that affects us and enslaves us all equally. Now, of course, some of us have decided that there are more socially acceptable sins than others and that the way it works out in our lives is more socially acceptable than others, but see, that's just not the case. As Flannery O'Connor said, if I was in sin, I was in it before I ever committed any. That's what Paul is saying. And that means that we have all, verse 23 of chapter 3, fallen, sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That we all have failed to meet the standard. And we all, I think we realize this deep down. We realize this deep down. Uh, because we realize that we can't even keep our own standards, much less God's standards. That's why we're always making excuses and trying to justify ourselves. Uh, 
And I think this is actually the reason why we boast. George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, once put in one of his plays, the lives which we have no, sorry, the lives which we have no use, which we have, have no use, no meaning, no purpose, and will fade out. You have to justify your existence or perish. And that's why we boast. We're saying, look at me. I'm worthy. But we never feel worthy. Say, look at me to promote our own glory, but deep down we're trying to hide the fact that we don't feel all that glorious. I met someone the other day, I was at a, a mixer, and I asked her, well, what do you do? And she told me what she did for a job, and then she said, um, you know, not only am I really successful at this profession, uh, I'm also um, a wonderful mom, a home group leader, and I'm involved uh, in this... Um, this kind of non-for-profit organization, I thought, and you're really secure about your existence, right? But I do it too. In fact, we do it collectively. We will do anything on the playground or um, at the office or in the classroom or even, even on the Oscar stage, we will try to justify our existence. Remember a couple, couple years ago that Oscar So White campaign? And how uncomfortable it made everyone feel? Why? Well, if you think about what the Oscar speeches are doing, I mean, if you listen to people's speeches at the Oscars, it's like one collective justification. One large speech to say we are worthy based on the ideologies that we hold. There's a reason why Merriam-Webster's word of the year last year was ism. Because we want to be justified by the ideologies that we hold. But you know, when, when there's a critique against that, well, the bubble burst. It bursts when people point out racism that involves in the institution. It bursts when people see that there's actually rampant abuse of power and sexual harassment. The bubble burst. And I'm not just picking on Hollywood. It happens for all of us. We say we love the poor, but we hate our next-door neighbor. We yell in favor of human rights, but then we turn around and berate our children and belittle them on Saturday morning. We march for equality, but we rank offenses so that we can make sure that we are exceptional. But Paul says that there is no godly people. And verse three, chapter 3, verse 25 said that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to actually make us acceptable before God. See, the cross says some very offensive things about us. The cross said that it took the most shameful death in the entire world that the world has ever known. You know, they didn't speak of the cross in the first century. You wouldn't mention the cross in the first century. You should certainly wouldn't wear it as jewelry. 
The cross did not become a Christian symbol until the 4th century. Did you know that? You know why? Because it took till people had not seen any crucifixions before they could actually put it up somewhere and be okay with that. It is the most shameful death anyone has ever known, and it took nothing less than that to deliver us. You see, the cross, it wounds our pride. And that's true whether we're irreligious or bad or good. See, if we're bad, then it wounds our pride uh, because it points out the fact that we're bad. And if we're good people, it wounds our pride even more because it says all our goodness, yeah, it didn't get us anywhere. We're, it's, what it's worthy of is death. A death of a cross. And so the cross means, and the fact that we're, God justifies the ungodly, means that our boasting is really ridiculous. Uh, when I was in middle school, I was on the worst football team that has ever existed. Wait, check that. That now, uh, title now belongs to my beloved Niners. I was on the second worst football team that ever existed. We lost every game. We only scored like one touchdown. And that was against a team that didn't even have proper equipment. Um, and so, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that we were known for. We would get beat 50, 60, 70 to zero. Okay? Uh, we were also known for something else. We did the best celebratory dances after any um, tackle, after any... Uh, you know, recovered fumble, anything. I remember one time, you know, they, you know, it's a, it, it's middle school, right? And people can't, aren't that, that coordinated. And so this, this team, they threw a toss sweep and, and the, the ball happened to fall right at my feet and I fell on it. And you know what I did after that? I got up and I went to the sidelines and I flexed. <laughs> you know, we would dance and spike the ball when like we stopped someone uh, after they had gotten a 40 yard run. And I remember uh, the high school coach coming down, and during halftime one time, he came into the locker room, and he goes, Men, do you not see the scoreboard? You need, you need, to, pay more, you, you need to spend more time learning football than on your dances, because you obviously don't even know how to read the scoreboard right now. You, you're winning 60 to 3. Uh, you're losing 60 to 3. What are you doing dancing for, right? Uh, when we boast before God, that's what we're doing. We're in the midst of our ungodliness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our lives that fall way short. Lives that deserve nothing less than the cross of Jesus Christ. When we say, look at me, look how good I'm doing. And it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. See, when you come to the foot of the cross and you realize that God justifies the ungodly, then you realize that there is no room to boast. It is excluded. That's the first thing that justification by faith tells us. That God justifies the ungodly. But secondly, justification by faith excludes or rules out Boasting, because justification by faith tells us that God justifies without regard to works or worth. In, in verse 28, 
Paul writes, For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, when Paul says works of the law, he is talking about the symbolic capital that would come from the Jewish law, from Torah, from possessing the Jewish law, from teaching the Jewish law, from following the Jewish law, and from the cultural ideologies that would be connected with the Jewish law. And Paul is saying that that is ruled out. That that symbolic capital does not count before God. And he hammers home his point by going to Abraham, the founder of Israel. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham discover? What did the patriarch, the founder and father of Israel, what did he discover uh, regarding this matter of justification? What he discovered is that all symbolic capital, whether Jewish works or any other works, is ruled out. Because notice that Paul never doesn't say works of the law anymore. Because works of the law didn't exist at that point in time. He's saying all forms of symbolic capital are completely ruled out. Familial capital, social capital, intellectual capital, moral capital. It's all ruled out. And, and, and he reminds us that the justification is by, is a gift. Look verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Uh, Paul's taking us into the world of business and he's saying, look, if you work for someone, they're contractually obligated to pay you. That's not a gift. And so he's trying to point out the fact that justification by faith reminds us that we relate to God on the basis of gift and not desert. And that's always been true and it's true all the way down. Augustine loved Paul, St. Augustine, uh, church father of the West, he, he loved Paul's statement in the Corinthian correspondence, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? You, you see, Christianity teaches that it's gift all the way down. That we never relate to God on the basis of merit or work or earning or anything else. You see, you say, well, I've worked really hard to produce the life that I have. Okay, but who gave you energy to work that hard? Who gave you drive? Where did the opportunities come from? Say, well, I earned, who gave you the intellect? Who gave you the mind to do that? Who gave you the social connections that made that happen? Because it didn't just happen on your own. God did. What do you have that you did not receive? And it's not just that it's gift all the way down from creation. It's also gift again in redemption, in salvation. The, the gift of salvation is a gift. A gift to receive, be received by faith. The gift of redemption in his blood. And it cost you nothing. But you know what? 
nothing is just too high a price to pay for self-sufficient people. Nothing is too off, is often too much for self-sufficient people to pay. But, but Paul's reminding us here that and justification by faith reminds us not simply that it's a gift, but that the gift of Jesus Christ is given without regard to worth or works. In other words, justification by faith reminds us that qualification is ruled out. See, most of us, I think, believe and get, many of us, that there's no way that we could actually earn salvation. Like, you can't achieve it, right? And most people believe that. Uh, most people understand that it's a gift. I think that most people understand that, whether they're uh, whatever tradition they're in or whatever. But what most of us think is that that gift is given without, with regard to worth. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Think of an inheritance, right? You could never say, you owe me an inheritance. You could never say, um, look, I've worked this much and you're contractually obligated to pay me an inheritance. You couldn't say that. But what you could think is, you know, if you were going to give out an inheritance, I'm a qualified recipient. I'm just the kind of person that you would give the inheritance to, either because I'm your son and we're related, or because I've been a really good neighbor and very close to you in the last years of your life, or, um, or because you have seen what I've done with the other gifts that you've given me and how responsible I've been, and therefore I know that you're going to give it to me for these things, or you know my need. But in all those circumstances... The inheritance is still a gift. It's not a payment. It's not merit. Right? But it's a gift given with regard to worth. Qualification. Suitability. There's a fittingness there. What did Abraham learn about the inheritance that he was promised? Abraham learned that every form of capital is ruled out. That it was given without regard to worth, without regard to qualifications. That moral capital, social capital, intellectual capital, um, familial capital, racial capital, that it's all ruled out. That boasting and boasting is therefore excluded. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts in God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's like, um, you know, around, uh, around 2000, early 2000, when Europe started going to the euro, and people had about two years to start using their money. And once they were done using their money, like, if you still had uh, the old currency, after, like, a certain date, it was not good anymore, right? Y you would go, and it was like, you know, it's like when you go to the places that are, like, cash only, Right? And you want to present something else, but like, we don't take that. We don't, we don't trade in that form of currency. Well, guess what? The only currency that God trades in is Jesus. Every other form of capital is ruled out. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 3. But you say, well, wait a second. Isn't that a qualification? Isn't faith a qualification? And a lot of us do think that. That faith is the one qualification. That is the moral qualification that we have. And we're like, 
will I listen to, I mean, George Michael was right. You just got to have faith, right? Some of you will get that later. But that only shows that we don't understand faith. Faith is not commitment to God. Faith is the acknowledgement that nothing about you and nothing in you meets the standard. Faith is actually, to speak of faith, is to register for bankruptcy. It's to say by every measure of social capital, symbolic social capital, or symbolic capital, I am bankrupt. I don't have moral capital, I don't have social capital, I don't have intellectual capital. I am bankrupt. And faith is therefore looking outside yourself for capital, for worth. Faith is looking to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Faith is looking outside yourself and realizing that God accepts you and gives you the gift of his righteous son for no earthly reason. And that's why faith is always directed outside of itself. It is self-abandoning faith. Which brings us to the last point. The last thing, the last reason why boasting is ruled out by justification by faith is because Justification by faith means that God justifies us because of Jesus. See, faith is the acknowledgement that nothing about me or nothing in me meets the standard. But faith is also looking and turning away and saying that, that the standard has been met outside of me in another. Uh, faith is always directed elsewhere. I once heard a story of a Wycliffe Bible translator who was, um, they, they were trying to translate this word faith and they couldn't figure out a word in the language that worked. And one day um, there were these workers in a field and it was hot, over 100 degrees. And the sun was beating down and they were out there all day and they were without water. And they were walking back. And as they were walking back home at the end of the day, dehydrated, exhausted, completely beaten down. They, they hit a line of trees. And there, there's this first big tree there. And this one, this one person, as they were walking by, they just fell down in the shade of the tree. They just collapsed. And the Bible translator saw that, and he looked at someone and he said, what do you call that? What's that called? And that's the word he used. To describe faith. And I think that gets at the dynamic. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him. Or whoever should collapse into him. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you collapsed into Jesus? Have you collapsed into Jesus? Well, here's a test. Here's how you know that you have collapsed into Jesus. You know you have collapsed into Jesus when you realize you have nothing else to boast in. 
You know you have collapsed into Jesus when you realize that your legs will not hold you. And there's nothing about you or nothing associated with you that you can boast in. See, what do you boast in? On what basis do you look down on others? And, and I'm talk, not talking about the things that you say. I'm talking about the things that you say to yourself. Where are you easily offended? Where do you feel like your pride has been undercut? What do you look at and you say, if, if I don't have blank, what am I? However you answer these questions, this is probably what you boast in. And what you boast in is what you have confidence in. And what you have confidence in is what you boast in. And we will boast in something. We all will. We have to. We have to have confidence in something. We have to put our worth and our value somewhere. And it's an either or. You will either boast in Jesus or something that is associated with you. Martin Luther put it well. He said, there's no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness, or I'd just say worth righteousness. Self-righteousness. There's no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Jesus, you must build your confidence on your own work. So what, what Luther is talking about and what I think Paul's describing in this text is two different modes of existence. A mode of existence where yourself is rooted in, animated by, and generated out of Jesus or you. So have you collapsed into Jesus? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus something else? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or Jesus plus my educational achievements? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus my children's successes? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus my social group and being on the inside? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus my racial identification? Have you collapsed into Jesus alone or Jesus plus something else? Because listen... If it's Jesus plus something else, whatever that something else is, whatever you boast in, it's terribly fragile. It's terribly fragile. Because, because it may be okay when things are going well. When you're making the grades, it's okay. But there's all the, always the potential that you won't. When the church is full... It's okay, but there's always the potential that it won't be. It's terribly fragile. But, but when you look to Jesus alone, it frees you. It frees you to say, I am unworthy, but Jesus is worthy for me. And therefore, I am free not to have to protect and defend my own fragile ego. You see, ancients used to say that, that our problem, our biggest problem is, is hubris, pride. We think too much of ourselves. 
In the modern world, we think it's the opposite. We call it self-confidence. People have self-esteem problems, and so they need to think more of themselves. And this influences counseling and education, parenting, all sorts of things. But you know what uh, the gospel says? The gospel says um, it frees you uh, not to have a sense of self-worth that is too high or too low because it frees you to look outside yourself to a worth that is founded in another life. The life of Jesus Christ for you and in you. And when you, when you boast in him, then, then you can take criticism. Then you can be unshaken. Then you don't have to boast in yourself. Because what are we looking for in all our boasting? Aren't we looking for love and acceptance? To know that we're worthy and we're valuable and we're saying, look at me, look at me. But when we realize that our worth and our value is in him, what do we say? Look at him. Look at him. When Satan tempts us to despair, look at him. When the law and the standards rear their ugly head over our lives and we feel like the anxious not measuring up, look at him. But when... When others criticize us, it's okay. Look at him. Now, Paul says, where then is it boasting is excluded, but it's not actually excluded, you know. That isn't the last time Paul will talk about boasting. It's transformed. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's the same word. So there's not just two modes of existence. There's also two types of boasting. And one boasting, when you boast in yourself, it's always fragile. And because it's always fragile, there's always a fly in the ointment. See, we boast in what we do, but we realize that what we do could go away. We boast in who we are, but we realize that who we are might change. We boast in others, others' uh, acceptance of us, but that we could be rejected by others. And there's always a fly in the ointment. And so it makes us sad. But when you boast in Jesus, well, that's a secure thing. And when you boast in him, then that brings joy. That's why we call it rejoicing. So Paul will say elsewhere, far be it from me, far be it from me, to boast in anything except the cross of Christ, wherein I was crucified to the world and the world to me. And may it be far from each of us to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ so that we might live in the freedom and the joy that that brings. Amen.